Hi, I'm Tina Desiree Berg, and welcome to the 34th. This week, the House passed the police reform measure known as the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, sending it to the Senate, just as former police officer Derek Chauvin is set to go on trial Monday in Minneapolis for his role in the police killing of George Floyd. But outrage over police killings and harassment and the mass incarceration of black and brown people and immigrants has also generated calls to go beyond reform to defund and abolish the police. President Biden ordered a 100-day moratorium on deportations as one of his first acts in office. But on Monday, U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE, deported at least 72 people to Haiti. Those deported included a two-month-old baby and 21-year—21 uh, other babies and children which seems to contradict the order by a federal judge that blocked the moratorium but left in place instructions that only the most serious immigration cases should be subject to deportation. The Guardian reports the adults and children were deported on two flights to the Haitian capital, Port-au-Prince, as the country faces skyrocketing political violence and protests against the Haitian president's U.S.-backed regime. Um, they've been going on for months, these protests. Their push came after hundreds were deported within Biden's first days in office, mostly from Haiti and African countries, including a man named Paul Pirelus, who was deported to Haiti. New York Congressmember Mondaire Jones had previously worked to successfully stop his deportation by the Trump administration before Biden was sworn in. But last Tuesday, Mondaire Jones tweeted, quote, at 3 a.m., my staff woke up to an urgent call suddenly, and in the dead of night, ICE was set to report to deport Rockland County's beloved Paul Pierluis to Haiti, a country he has never been to. Unquote. Monday's deportations to Haiti came after ICE had just suspended deportation flights to Haiti on Friday. Hi, I'm Tina Desiree Burke, and this week we're speaking with Colin Kalmbacher, who is the editor at Law and Crime News. Welcome, Colin. Thanks for having me, Tina. Yeah, absolutely. You've been doing some interesting pieces lately, but one that particularly caught my eye is on Joe Biden, his administration, and how they are defending Betsy Davos. And I feel like we have to have a little bit of a conversation about the background here, as Joe Biden is one of the main reasons why student debt is attached to students even now after they, if they file bankruptcy, it, it remains. They can't get rid of it. So we're looking at a situation where it's expanding. Um, a lot of the Sally Mae lenders uh, pretty much have gotten away with murder. We even have folks on Social Security that, have, that are having their checks garnished by the government to pay back uh, student loan debt. So in your investigation, you basically found out that there is an ex-Trump DOG official, Department of Justice official, who is helping to defend uh, Betsy Davos in her litigation against students that were ripped off by her. So give us a little bit about on the background here and explain for the audience that it's not a requ requirement of them, meaning the Department of Justice, to defend Betsy. Yeah, so uh, I guess the, the major issue and what kind of made this newsworthy in the first place is that you have a few attorneys um, with the Department of Justice, these DOJ, uh, basically career officials, uh, most of them, but one of them was specifically hired by the Biden administration. Uh, that's acting assistant attorney general brian Poynton, right. and 
they put their names on this document that says the U.S. Department of Justice is representing uh, Betsy DeVoe, uh, DeVos um, in her personal capacity and as part of a kind of effort to shield cabinet level officials mm -hmm. from this kind of scrutiny. Uh, the issue here is that these former students who were ripped off by their for-profit colleges, they were scammed. Uh, no one disputes the fact that they were scammed. Uh, DeVos herself has in the past uh, said in court documents and press releases that this was a bad thing that happened. Though, as the um, leader of the Department of Education, she kind of fought against their interests. Uh, there was some um, administrative foot dragging. Right. Uh, but overall, everybody agrees that these students are more or less in the right. Um, so what the students want is to uh, perform some depositions and to see kind of what led to the decisions at the Department of Education and find out why it was taking them so long to process these claims, to get them their money back, uh, and so on and so forth. And the Biden DOJ has kind of stepped in and said, no, you know what? You cannot talk to Betsy DeVos about this. We're not going to let you do that. I think they are concerned about setting a precedent mm -hmm. um, of having cabinet level officials having to go on the record and explain in their uh, actions in front right. of, a, well, it wouldn't necessarily be in front of a court, but, you know, it, under oath. And that's, a, that's essentially what kind of shocked and surprised a lot of folks here. And that's why we did the story. So they want to protect their current cabinet from possibly being scrutinized in the same way, but that just seems ridiculous to me. Uh, transparency in government, I think, is key. And the Democrats, always, the Democratic Party itself always seems to be pro-transparency and anti-corruption, yet they do things like this that are just the optics are absolutely terrible, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, do you think that that's a problem in general for the Democrats? Well, I mean, the issue is they always run on transparency, right? And they always yeah. uh, are keen to point out, and they are correct to point out, that the Republicans are atrocious and horrific when it comes to uh, transparency overall. The Trump administration was very much like its GOP predecessors in that regard. They were very bad with uh, transparency. And the Biden campaign promised that there would be a changing of the guard, that it would be different. They, you know, they did some iteration of a promise the, akin to will be the most transparent administration of all time. Obama did the same thing. Right. And, you know, they, they make these pains to transparency, but when the rubber meets the road, yeah. they have court filings where they're protecting one of the most hated and vilified members of the former administration. And they don't have to act as her personal attorney. But that's what the DOJ has chosen to do. It is a choice. They are not bound by law. They are not even necessarily bound by precedent. These sorts of depositions have happened in the past. It's not, I wouldn't say it's common, uncommon, or rare. Um, it's, you know, it, I guess it, I would say it's highly fact intensive. That's mm -hmm. uh, my attorney brain speaking for a second. <laughs> I, I don't want to categorize them as uh, being something that, like, oh, yeah. This, this happens all the time, or this doesn't happen all the time. I think it highly depends on the facts. And here there's just, as far as I can see, uh, no reason whatsoever for them to step in. Uh, it's, it's like, again, generally undisputed that these students were scammed, that they have valid factual claims. And uh, it is also more or less undisputed that the Department of Education 
did something wrong here. Yeah. In fact, several federal courts have sanctioned the Department of Education uh, under Betsy DeVos for doing something wrong here. So under this specific fact pattern, it just makes absolutely no sense whatsoever for the Biden administration, for the Department of Justice to say, we're her personal attorney. No, you can't put her under oath and ask her about her job. It, it really boggles the mind. It's the opposite of transparency. And Betsy DeVos runs for-profit universities. That's what that's what she was doing prior to taking this job in the Trump administration. And the Democratic Party also has been keen in some areas with privatization, including uh, you know schools that are support for charter schools would be one example. Do you think sure. that there's a relationship there here, or is it simply the concern that they don't want to set a precedence as far as being able to put their cabinet members under oath? Um. We didn't really touch upon that in any of okay. our reporting. Uh, I, I think uh, it's, if you want to see some more information about that, I would look to the Republic report. David Halperin is a journalist who uh, is doing a lot more on those specific angles. Okay. But my general answer to that question is that the money is always important. Um, I, I don't think it should go uh, undiscussed or, or unreported. Um, in this specific instance, I can't say, but I do remember that the Obama administration was very keen on charter schools, very big on privatization. Uh, a lot of their high-level appointees, uh, including essentially Obama's hand-picked senator for Colorado, Michael Bennett, he comes from that background. Right. So it, it, it's no surprise to me that mm -hmm. uh, you know the, the phrase strange bedfellows, uh, <laughs> there's nothing strange about it. These, right. these people are all kind of cut from the same cloth. Um, but we didn't we didn't necessarily touch upon any of that in our reporting. So okay. I should probably defer to uh, David Halpern's work again in the Republic Report. Okay. He did the first story on this that kind of put us uh, on the trail. Uh, we picked up a whole bunch of the uh, extra court documents after that. Uh, he does good stuff and I would check him out for sure. Okay, excellent, good recommendation. Um, speaking of Democratic Party hypocrisy, so in the news this week, Obviously, the cycle, we have the COVID-19 uh, relief bill, which is a must-pass bill. It is a budget reconcil reconciliation bill, so it's not attached to any sort of filibuster. So this is something that the Democratic Party needs to pass. Um, and they're being held hostage, in my opinion, by their more conservative members who are willing to flex their muscle and their power, whereas the progressive seems... The progressive side seems less likely to do so. I think a prime example is currently Joe Manchin has decided that he wants to lower the unemployment insurance from $400 to $300. Uh, and they went to him for a pre-approval, according to Jeff Stein from the Washington Post. But I want to point out something that I think is really salient. A year ago, under the Trump administration, when the GOP controlled the Senate as well, the uh, unemployment insurance payments were $600. So we have now backtracked considerably from that point. And I think this might be a point of problem for the Democratic Party come midterm elections because they are not fulfilling their promise of offering more to the American public. What are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think on just at a basic level, it's kind of embarrassing and yeah. it's definitely it, it's embarrassing for the Democrats. Um, it's disastrous for working families um, who are relying on those uh, payments, those the, the what Matt Brunick calls the super dole, um, the six hundred dollar boosts. Um, 
which I believe were invented by Ron Wyden and Bernie Sanders. I, if I, yeah. I, I may be getting that. Uh, incorrect, no, that's correct. I, I know those two definitely pushed forward in the first uh, relief package. And yeah, I, I think it's an embarrassment to the Democrats um, that they are essentially allowing uh, Donald Trump um, to be twice as generous as them when it comes to those uh, unemployment boosters. Though whether it actually translates into any type of a, an electoral issue for them is kind of a question that depends on the Republican Party because right. they're kind of in a bind where they're, they're certainly not going to run on giving uh, poor people more money or unemployed people more money. They, they could try to point out that you know, Trump did this uh, yeah. about two times, or literally two times as much as them, but I, I don't see how the GOP frames those messaging ads. Though if they were to get on that message, then it would be probably pretty disastrous, yeah. Yeah, I hear what you're saying. So it sort of depends on whether the GOP going forward decides to embrace more of the right-wing populism that came more to the front during the Trump administration versus their traditional business interest side. So that's a fair point. Yeah. Um, I think it's bad news for the Democrats either way, though, because it's going to anger the progressives that are already giving their tentative support. And one of the things that Joe Manchin said was that he didn't want to um, sort of encourage people not to return to work because of the higher payments on unemployment. But my thing is this, Joe, listen, maybe if folks were getting paid a living wage to begin with, that wouldn't even be a point of conversation. So if you had perhaps supported a $15 minimum wage, that would have been a better idea. I mean, you can't have it both ways. The reason people were doing better, they understand that they were doing better under these boosts is because they were finally getting something more akin to what they could survive on. You can't survive on anything. I mean, even 15 is not enough in the city of Los Angeles. I mean, no, do the math. You can't pay rent, you can't put food, you know? So. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. J Joe Manchin, who I guess you know, the president is Joe now. It's the president, yeah. Joe Manchin. Yeah. Uh, he, he's he's kind of reiterating this old uh, economic uh, kind of canard that uh, yeah. I used to call it in the '90s the two income trap, where you know people who are just on the line have to make the choice of well, do they work 40 hours a week and uh, kind of turn down a bunch of uh, government ben benefits. Or do they work less than that and make more money by a benefit? Sorry, if, if you're hearing that, I'm just getting pizza delivered. That's all right. Oh, um, lucky you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, the, but the issue is, uh, Joe Manchin doesn't have any desire whatsoever to 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 make that calculation easier for people, like you said, by supporting a fifteen dollar right. or a, any type of a living wage. Uh, he essentially is you know, kind of just completely dialed into this right-wing ideology that says we have to force poor people back to taking terrible jobs that are also, by the way, possibly or more than likely unsafe uh, yeah. during the pandemic right now. And it's, you know, it's gross, it's disgusting, but I don't know if anybody should expect, should expect rather anything better from this guy. Yeah, I certainly don't. And it really sort of is problematic that the DCCC supported him in the last primary election when they had a really solid primary contender, Paula Jean Swearingen. Uh, that was a choice they made. And now they're now that the roosters are coming home to roost, I'm not sure how they um, support that previous decision. Hindsight is great vision, but I don't even think they see it as problematic even now. That's really the issue, I think. Yeah, it's always hard to tell where these party committees uh Right 
royalties really lie, whether they're inco incumbent protection racket, whether they're strictly yeah. focused on who's the biggest fundraiser. Yeah. Um, I, I don't think that they have any uh, general motivating thing that uh, animates their decision making from one election cycle to the next. I think it's pretty ad hoc, though right. it definitely tends to err on the side of they don't think progressives can win and uh, they don't want them to. So if you keep right. those two things in mind, then a lot of their decisions, most of the time, nine times out of 10 will make sense uh, under that like kind of a prism. Yeah. But uh, otherwise, yeah. No, I, 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 I agree. They happy. serve the platonomy, right? They yeah. That matters more to them, the donor class. Yeah, I, I don't think they're happy that they pick losers uh, yeah. all the time, like uh, <laughs> Cal Cunningham or Teresa Greenfield, all these uh, uh, folks uh, that have lost uh, the last few cycles. Uh, yeah. But uh, yeah, I, I, I think they would rather um, uh, stick to the donor class, again, nine times out of 10. They just don't think progressives can raise money or, um, and they are probably not too keen on having another Bernie Sanders in the Senate, uh, just to be honest. Oh, I agree with you. They absolutely do not want Bernie Sanders in the Senate. They didn't want him in the White House uh, because the battles that he wants to wants to wage are about structural change. Like he wants to actually change the structure of, of the way things are right now. And the donor class doesn't want that because it allows them to extract more wealth. And they really need both parties engaged in their wealth extraction for them to continue to be successful at that. So and and Bernie Sanders. I would also say Ed Markey at this point, uh, Jeff Merkley, perhaps these guys represent something different than that. And uh, that's more threatening to them. Yeah, um, uh, structural issues, I, I think, are, are something that, uh, however you want to define it, the left has kind of um, e either ignored or hasn't been able to give attention to um, for the past couple decades. Um, yeah. And now, now that's kind of coming to the fore and I, I think the, the party establishment understands that, you know, if, if only for this reason, that not addressing structural concerns kind of means an end to the gravy train. It, it's not even, you don't have to get too deep into ideology. It's for so many of these people, it's about jobs, access, and cash. Right, absolutely. Um, I wanted to talk about another investigation you did recently in regards to ICE um, and the Biden administration now backtracking from their moratorium. So the history on this is obviously it was what, much worse under the Trump administration. Trump pretty much gave ICE carte blanche to just round up and deport whoever. Um, but this actually started under the Obama administration, and his threshold was, my understanding is, um, significant misdemeanor crime. So anybody with what they deemed was a significant misdemeanor got to be deported. But here's the thing. Even though the Biden administration may be better, definitely better than Trump and slightly better than Obama, he still isn't meeting the promise that he made during the election because he has now backed away from this moratorium promise. What is the, right. the story and history on this and your thoughts um, in regards to what Biden's thinking here? Okay, so I'll try, I'll try to sum it up as uh, quickly as possible. Uh, he, he made the promise uh, initially during, I believe it was a Nevada debate uh, during the Democratic primary, right. uh, reiterated that promise again about uh, no more, no, no deportations whatsoever. There were no conditions on it during the first 100 days in office. Uh, he said that eventually that he wanted to limit deportations to people who I believe had committed or were convicted of uh, serious felonies. Um, but the initial promise was first 100 days, 
a deportation moratorium. And it's pretty obvious <laughs> what that means. Uh, yeah. I think that's pretty clear. <laughs> it's pretty a clear. moratorium is a moratorium. Yeah. And that means that that means an end. That, it, you know, typically under uh, political, uh, you know, uh, considerations, it, it's an end while you hash out what you want to do next. And I think that was also always pretty clear with Biden, uh, especially when he said that he eventually wanted to limit deportations to people convicted of serious felonies. So, okay. It was an interim thing from the get-go, that's fine. As soon as Biden takes office, however, he issues this first uh, immigration uh, memorandum, which quickly <laughs> quickly cuts the deportation moratorium into something altogether different. Um, deportations will continue. And uh, I'll go back to, to your referencing the Obama standard, which was uh, kind of like heightened uh, misdemeanors yeah. or significant misdemeanors, whatever it was, I forget the verbiage at the moment, but. Uh, he uses the felony uh, consideration uh, as this as basic as the baseline, but there's also a massive uh, kind of like gaping hole there. You have to uh, an undocumented immigrant would have had to have been in the country before November 2020 um, to qualify for these moratorium protections. So from the get go, the actual policy was not a moratorium at all. Right. Okay. Um, you know, it's a, it's a legal document. It's different from a campaign promise. Fine. Uh, people were still referring to it more or less as a deportation moratorium until a few days later when you have Judge Drew Tipton, a Trump appointed judge in the Southern District of Texas, who kind of puts the kibosh on the whole concept of a deportation moratorium saying, you can't do this anymore. So immediately after that, and by the way, ICE is deporting people the whole time. Right. Um, uh, some say it's a rogue agency. Some say there was never really much of an intent to hold them in check and to kind of ex exercise any executive discipline on these guys. Um, it's obvious uh, the kind of person who goes to work for ICE is, yeah, um, indeed. <laughs> you know, we don't have to say too much about that. But uh, anyway, ICE is deporting people all the while. Um, but as soon as that Southern District of Texas order comes out, the administration kind of uses it as a blanket shield to say, well, we tried. Uh, they threw their hands up in the air. They are not going to do it anymore. But as immigration law experts, and uh, we did a story citing over, and again, forgive me, I, I don't remember the exact numbers, but definitely over a dozen, I think it was dozens of immigration law practitioners legal professors and experts who noted, yes, technically the Southern District of Texas enjoined this uh, section C of the initial immigration memo, but an article three judge has no power whatsoever to actually force the executive branch to deport a single human being. Okay. There are creative ways, um, some not so creative ways. We see this kind of thing all the time in jurisdictions that kind of declined to enforce marijuana laws. Mm -hmm. All the Biden administration had to do was decline to uh, enforce these deportation removal orders. They, they would still be abiding by the court order. You would have a process called removal <laughs> technically occurring, but you don't have to schedule the flight that uh, sends people back into harm's way in Haiti. Right. You don't have to schedule the flights that send people who witness um, crimes back to Ecuador uh, or El Salvador. Right. Um, 
one of the, I guess there was a high profile AP story about uh, one of the witnesses to the El Paso Walmart massacre. Uh, they were sent back home. Um, home. Their home is, their home is, they, they want to live in the United States. That's where they want their home. But they were sent back to Mexico. Um, so what the Biden administration did had a chance to do was to kind of rein in ICE guidance and, you know, issue some more, you know, they, they don't, like I said, they don't have to be completely novel and creative about it. There could actually be a different suite of guidance that interprets, reinterprets the uh, Southern District of Texas order to kind of put something on the record rather than just declining to enforce uh, deportations. They did go ahead and issue a new set of ICE guidance. That second set of ICE guidance, um, it kind of limited their ability with certain classes of undocumented immigrants to deport people, but then it also ramped up their ability to deport uh, other classes of, of undocumented immigrants. Right. So it's, uh, we use the phrase backtrack in the headline because that's what it was. It was a backtrack. Um, again, legal experts, immigration law experts have said there is no one actually forcing, and that's kind of how the system works, right? right. You can't force the president, you can't force the executive branch to do anything. Um, but the administration is, they, you know, they've, they've appealed the ruling in the Southern District of Texas, but uh, anyone familiar with the federal court system knows that the way this is going to play out is by the time those 100 days are over, regardless of the uh, outcome, uh, the, the promise will have since been removed. So um, that's done. It's, uh, it's a it's a failed promise. It's a, however you want to term it. It's a failed promise. I think that's about right. Um, Khalid, let me ask you this. Uh, you know, DHS came to be under the George W. Bush administration. This was probably one of the greatest expansions of the federal government in decades. Um, yep. So I, I sort of understand what people that have that rogue criticism of both DHS and ICE. ICE is um, <clears throat> inside the DHS. But Trump had appointed a lot of ex-John Tanton uh, folks at DHS and at ICE while he was president. And this is uh, uh, John Tanton organizations like FAIR. They're nativist organizations. They don't believe they're not only against illegal immigration, they're against all immigration and quite frankly they want to create at the end of the day a white nationalist country they believe that that's what the united states is supposed to be and one of the things that john tanton used to talk about was he wanted to change i believe it's, is it the 14th amendment that's the birthright he wanted to be able to change that to uh right. support his beliefs right and there was a whole uh, foia disclosed disclosed conversation where he actually spoke to an attorney about this and the attorney said he was crazy of course but that's how extreme some of these appointees were under Trump. So I think this is really fair criticism. And I'm wondering how much of a gate change there has been in the first uh, 100 days under Biden. Uh, in, in terms of, like, I guess, personnel and yeah. uh, things like that. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's just speculation. But I okay. would say the fact that we... Um, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and speculate. The fact that we haven't seen stories about... Um, huge turnovers uh, right. in ICE staff, DHS staff, suggests that that's because this is not happening. Um, at least, you know, at least it hasn't happened yet. And this this might be one of the areas where, uh, you know, you, you get a lot of, uh, and this always happens, you get a lot of administration defenders on social media, give the guy a break. It's only been X number of days. Right. Um, yeah, maybe maybe there is an argument for you, you don't want to completely fire everybody 
every single body that works in a federal agency. Um, it's not particularly persuasive to me, um, no. but I could see how that might be persuasive to some people. But I would say your general question is kind of on point. We haven't heard any stories about um, ICE staff being uh, fired in mass because it hasn't happened yet. Uh, I, I think a lot of immigration advocates and people from the uh, immigrant rights communities and uh, activists and policy folks would love to see something like that. Mm -hmm. Would praise the Biden administration for taking a bold and courageous stand or something along those lines, but it hasn't happened yet. We'll see if it does. Yeah, that was my suspicion because I, again, I hadn't heard anything either. I'm like, my suspicion is that there hasn't been enough of a turnover. And when you have folks in an immigration federal agency that don't believe in immigration, this is very deadly. Of course, they're going to go rogue. That is their, that is what they want. They want all of these folks gone. And it even got to the point here in California where they were deporting veterans of the war, war veterans. These were folks that actually fought for the United States abroad in Iraq, et cetera in Afghanistan, and they were being deported, um, oftentimes under basic misdemeanors like uh, DUIs and things. This is absolutely crazy to me. If somebody serves in our military, defends the nation, they should be given permanent citizens citizenship, not deported. Yeah, it's, it's just, uh, it's, it's unchecked cruelty with these people. And, you know, the, it's kind of a cliche at this point to say the cruelty is the point. For them, yeah. for them, I don't know if the cruelty even is the point. I'm sure that these are very nice and polite people if when you get them in front of a, a, a dinner conversation yeah. or something along those lines. Like you said, they have an ideology that wants to keep the United States of America as white as possible for as long as possible. Mm -hmm. And they will... They will do absolutely anything to make sure that happens. Yeah. And when you entrust those kinds of people with police power, with the power of the executive branch, with fatigues and badges and guns, um, very bad things are bound to happen. Yeah, 100%. Speaking of very bad things are bound to happen, uh, Derek Chauvin trial is going on currently this week. I know law and crime has been doing some coverage on this. Is there any important news coming out of that so far? Um, so actually, we, we're kind of, I would say, keep an eye on the website today. There, uh, there is the extant issue of the third degree murder charge, which the state um, uh, initially leveled against him. The defense was able to successfully, I think on two separate occasions now, convince a judge to uh, kind of uh, dismiss that charge in particular. Mm -hmm. um, so I would say that that's where a lot of the action is happening right now with that hugely important trial, which uh, I would be remiss if I didn't say you should all watch on the Long Crime Network. Um, we are going to be uh, broadcasting, uh, I think, every second of it um, okay. uh, live as it's happening and then with analysis uh, as the opportunity arises. So yeah, please please watch us, uh, watch the uh, the coverage there. But yeah, the, to your question, the big issue right now is whether or not that third degree murder charge is reinstated. Yeah, so can you give me some history on that? Uh, third degree versus second versus first. Why did they go with the third degree? How, what, what was the background on that to begin with? Um, so it's, it's kind of a way in, you know, this is a phrase that I would use in law school, which maybe it, it might sound a little, uh, a little iffy outside of the legal context, but you know, you kind of want to, uh, if you're a prosecutor, you want to bootstrap uh, as much as you can. You want to charge a criminal defendant with as many plausible charges. Um, and you know, you don't want to okay. overreach, but anything that you can plausibly charge them with, 
you want to get the maximum sentence. Uh, you might be doing this because you are trying to seek justice. You might be doing this because you were trying to force them into a plea deal. You might be doing it just because it's the right thing to do and because the facts merit uh, throwing the book at them. That might be a, a, a more colloquial way of uh, terming it. And so that's what the state did there. Um, okay. They threw the book at him. Uh, third degree murder is, I, I guess, uh, in Minnesota, that's more or less the felony murder uh, charge there. Um, kind of in the news uh, every once in a while, because in general, the concept of felony murder, I would say, and a lot of criminal justice reform advocates would say, is is kind of a cop out. It's 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 if anyone dies while there's a commission of a felony, and so you can be held liable, uh, even if you are not responsible for the death okay. uh, directly. If you are involved in the underlying felony and a death results, so you get sometimes crazy results there. Um, two results, uh, you get sometimes crazy. Um, uh, in consequences there. Uh, okay. Say uh, there was a firefight, you were the getaway driver, and one of your friends who was uh, shooting at the cops gets killed by a cops, gets killed by the cops. Sometimes you can be held liable for their death. Or oh, interesting. Or, or uh, I guess the most common uh, way is that you're the getaway driver in a bank robbery and someone dies during the bank robbery. You didn't fire a gun, you never touched a weapon then you could still uh, end up uh, being executed uh, in certain states. So here, however, um, I think the prosecution might have a bit more of a, like, a justified argument. Um, they're saying the underlying felony was kind of the excessive force that was used right. against George Floyd. And so that ended in his death. And so it, it, it kind of has a bit more connective tissue than just saying the guy who drove the car uh, who was nowhere near the gunfire, um, but the uh, Minnesota court system has up to this point on two separate occasions uh, against the protestations of the state, they have tossed that uh, third degree murder charge in I this see. case. And uh, it, it could come back. Uh, that's the issue. Um, so Carla, let me ask you though, this as an attorney, would you say that I'm, so they're sort of foregoing just, I'm a novice here, work with me. Uh, they're sort of foregoing this idea of premeditation, right? That they're taking that off the table. Um, yeah, but no, some people would argue that what he did was sort of premeditated. To have your knee on somebody's neck that long, he had to have known that that would eventually kill him. No. Uh, I I, I don't know. <laughs> I I'm I'm not willing to really go into okay. that too much. I, I'm not I'm not sure. I mean, there there is an argument, um, but I think just based on the way that the Minnesota law is written, it was almost, it would have almost certainly failed. Typically okay. when you're looking at, when you're, you're looking at premeditation, I'll, I'll just answer this from like a legal textbook point. Of view. Okay, perfect. Uh, you're, you're kind of more trying to get into the mind of the person. Like does this person have animosity that is known and that you can prove okay. towards this other person? And, and that's why, you know, I don't know if you remember, there was some of that initial reporting about maybe uh, Derek Chauvin and George Floyd working at the same uh, nightclub or something. That's right. And so like, maybe maybe they had beef or whatever. But I think a lot of that got walked back. Okay. If Maybe if that had um, actually, you know, led to anything uh, substantive and yeah. they could have proven that there was like a prior, like uh, kind of contentious relationship between the two, okay. then we might have seen something. But I think in this case, the prosecution didn't go for murder one because they 
they just didn't really have any way to kind of get into okay. uh, the defendant's mind, Chauvin's mind here to, to say, well, did he actually harbor some kind of animus? Was he actually, did he ever express to anyone like racial animosity right. or some personal gripe um, with George Floyd in particular? And I, I, I guess up to this point, they, they haven't been able to find uh, So if they had been able to substantiate any of that, that would have been a different ballpark. So third degree murder is probably the extent of where they could stretch that. Okay. Yeah, <sighs> no, I mean, and I, I think uh, they do have them on second degree murder as well. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, but so the the issue is whether they can also add the third degree back in. So they have them. They have them. Oh, so they want to keep one. both, and it's not one or the other. Okay, it's I. Not, it's not one or the other. It could be I both. See. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. So now you've explained it for all us unattorneys what's going on here, because there was some some confusion about that. At least there was for me. <laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah. So no problem. No problem. Another thing that you reported on recently that I thought was crazy is a federal judge in Arizona and the prison system in Arizona has uh, now facing contempt of court charges for the second time because they have denied uh, health care or they're violating prisoners' rights to health care. And this stems back to a ruling that came out in 2014 where the ACLU took them to court, uh, class action, I believe, um, on behalf of the prisoners because they weren't getting adequate health care and they were being denied that by the prison system. What's going on in this situation? So this is kind of the classic, um, well, I mean, I was going to say the classic Kafka-esque situation, but it's, Kafka-esque. it's really not. This is, this is kind of the more, uh, I guess, uh, contemporary Arizona uh, bad jailer situation. It has like echoes or shades of um, the, uh, the, uh, the, the sheriff uh, who, who was having his open air prison and right. forcing his, his guys to, um, his guys, his prisoners to do, you know, backbreaking manual labor under the sun. Um, but this is the Arizona prison system. Um, this is uh, multiple um, prison units, and it's essentially, I, w- I would say, just to, at a basic level, it's guards and the people who are in charge of the guards who do not care about the health or the welfare uh, of the prisoners that are under their care. And they have now been sanctioned by the court uh, two separate times. And the first time around, they were told to change their behavior, and they apparently did not do so. Mm. They admitted that they did not do so. And so they have been fined millions of dollars. Uh, we're at the point where the judge, uh, Judge Rosalind Silver, at, I believe, is uh, using some of those fines to appoint an independent third party. Essentially, they're, they're putting a new... Um, or rather, they're putting a, a private prosecutor on the case to okay. find out. Um, you know, I, I think it's it's uh, like the ACLU brought this as a class action civil lawsuit, and so you know, I, I wouldn't uh, hold my breath to wait for any kind of criminal sanction. But that's essentially what's happened. They, they're using these fines to hire outside counsel to kind of see. Okay, we've seen the rot. We've known that it's been there since 2014. You've now gone on the record to admit that you're not complying with the court order, that you don't have any control over these guards or their immediate superiors. And we need to see how deep this goes. How bad uh, is this system? Uh, like you said, they're denying people health care that they are, you know, constitutionally human rights and now court ordered bound. You know, you have all of these um, things that are pressing upon them uh, to do what they're supposed to do to take care of these people. And 
they are not doing it. So um, it's, it's, it's a really sad and kind of a disgusting situation. It's quite disgusting. Uh, is the prison system in Arizona, is it private or uh, no? Well, uh, um, for, I mean, for profit? I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure whether or not Arizona does have some private prisons, but the lawsuit uh, here, this concerns the State Department of Corrections. So these are state administered facilities. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, wow. I, I'm sure the Arizona does have some private prisons, but here we're, we're talking about the Arizona Department of Corrections. These are these are uh, facilities that are administered directly by people that are employed by the state. So, um, it, <laughs> you know, on a, on a level that maybe um, some folks might understand uh, better than uh, the, the, the cares or the concerns of people that are in prison, this could end up costing the state a lot of money. It's not the way that, uh, you know, I would... <laughs> it, but uh, if, if it keeps going and these concerns are not addressed, then they're looking at not just a couple million dollars in fines, they are looking yeah. at probably quite a bit more than that, uh, let's say exponentially. Do you know, it's amazing to me though, Colin, that that is, doesn't seem to be a deterrent either within the prison system or any of the police departments. They all seem to be at this point now where they have in, in their budgets, um, they, they've set aside money that they know they're going to be paying lawsuits with. And they just sort of look at that as the cost of doing business, as opposed to perhaps doing something to change the things that are causing these lawsuits. I don't understand why this isn't a deterrent. Is it because that the taxpayer is the ultimate gap stop here and they just know that that budget money is going to be in place or or what? I mean, I feel like this needs to be reformed in some capacity. Yeah, uh, that's... <laughs> I'm throwing my hands up here. Those are really yeah. good questions. I don't know. I don't know what's going to deter them um, short of, and again, I would say you have to hold your breath uh, or not to I warn you not to hold your breath short of some type of a criminal threat or sanction. Um, I, I'm not sure. I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying they're not going to ever change, but right. it's been seven years now. Um, everybody knows what's going on. They're admitting their behavior. Uh, in court documents. I mean, I guess, you know, a saving grace, they're not lying to the court, um, at least so right. far, at least as far as we know. <laughs> well, there's that. Um, <laughs> you know. They're admitting to their atrocious behavior. Yeah, it's yeah. wild. And we see it with the New York Police Department. We've seen it in Chicago. We've seen it definitely in Los Angeles. Uh, you know, I can't think of the numbers off the top of my head, but I had interviewed an ex-police officer that gave me the numbers for what they have to pay out lawsuits with every year, and I almost fell over. I was just absolutely stunned by this. Yeah, when, that's, be... when, that's, when this behavior is priced in, as they say, to use like a stock market term, um, the, the question is, can these institutions actually be reformed? I'll leave that as an open question. I think that is the question of the day, you know, and I've often talked about this with the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department. I think the LAPD can be reformed. I do not think the LA, Los Angeles Sheriff's Department can be reformed because since the beginning, they've had problems with gangs, interior gangs inside the sheriff's department. And these these are cops that are committing the same crimes they're arresting people for, right? They're running guns, they're dealing drugs, they're committing murders. They yeah. have, there's absolutely no control over them. We elected a, a first time in 100 years, a Democratic sheriff that actually ran as a Bernie crap, believe it or not. He's done nothing to fix the problems. They set up a civilian oversight committee to oversee um, correcting some of the behaviors, but the sheriff's department gets to put 
people on that commission. So it's like they're policing themselves now. And then he almost uh, did show up to a meeting for the Board of Supervisors. They were almost forced to subpoena him to show up. So, I mean, it's just like one thing after another. And if this guy isn't able to reform the system, the system is fundamentally broken to the point where it can't be reformed. That's my two cents on that subject. Um, before I let you go, Colin, is there any new articles that you're working on uh, today or this week that you wanted to share with the audience? Uh, well, like I, I said, uh, we are covering the George Chauvin thing. Um, yeah. The uh, Sorry, the George Chauvin, the Derek Chauvin Derek thing. Derek Chauvin, um, I got gotcha. you. And uh, there should be an article out about that. Uh, we'll have some analysis. Um, we, we are pretty reactive um, when it comes to the news. Um, yeah. But uh, I would say uh, probably one of the more interesting ones that we did today is that Deborah Katz, the attorney who is representing Charlotte Bennett, uh, one of Andrew Cuomo's accusers, oh, yeah. her website was hacked. Um, hard to say whether it was overnight or early Saturday morning. Oh, uh, wow. Uh, and uh, they've contacted law enforcement about that. She sent me an email to let me know. Um, so that's a thing now. Interesting. Uh, we, have a, we have a story that, that just went up about that. Um, so yeah, check that out on the website. Um, I think the drama concerning uh, Governor Cuomo is interesting and we will keep close tabs on that as it all unfolds. Um, Indeed it is. Let me ask you this. You guys had, I think, done a piece on the nursing home problem. So he, it's now come out that he's, he's obviously corruption's involved, but he was changing the numbers on that. And I believe that one of his staff members that was responsible for actually changing the numbers had a relationship with uh, one of the private nursing facilities or something of this nature? Um, that I'm not sure. Okay. I, it, it sounds about right. Uh, I know we did a story yesterday. Uh, one of the people who actually drafted that the the fake numbers document was an ethics law professor. So that was Wait. kind of that was kind of a you know I'll just say that was an interesting angle for us. Wait, um, wait, hang on. You're kidding me. She's an ethics law professor. Ethics law professor. Yeah, you could check that one out. That's on okay. the website right now. Um, Wonders never cease to amaze. If you, if, if you wrote this kind of stuff as part of a screenplay, you would you would get accused <laughs> of uh, taking it a little too far. Uh, indeed true, indeed true. And if Colin, if people want to follow you on Twitter, what is your Twitter handle? It is just my first and last name. Okay, Very so C-O-L-I-N-K-A-L-K-A-L-M-B-A-C-H-E-R. 